BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Today is the day you will lose fat. Come see Dr. T at NJ Diet. Easiest diet I've ever done. It's changed my life. Come see Dr. T. Using blood work and DNA testing. 1-855-5-NJ-DIET and njdiet.com. Change your life in only 40 days with NJ Diet. I think if you get joy in it, fuck it. I mean, yeah. I've probably lost Lord knows how much. You see, I'm playing on three freaking phones right now. <laughs> yeah, so... I've lost Lord knows how much money on this, but it's one of the things that I have that kind of keeps me uh, centered and calm. So, Are those three different accounts? <laughs> do you, did you used to play Pokemon at all, or no, do you play? Never, I, Thank God you didn't. It's a uh, terrible addiction. Uh, but basically, uh, in order to play the game at a normal level now, you have to have more than one account to do certain certain things unless you have a team right so you probably know the original game was just picking like you know just go outside and yeah yeah yeah. but obviously that bored the normal person like it came out in july by october they probably lost i don't know 90 percent of their usage but then a, a bunch of weirdos kept going and then they started adding a bunch of stuff that just just kept pulling people back in they like for the collectors they added shiny like variant versions so the equivalent of sneaker comes out and you mm. need it in that other colorway but the only the other colorway is only like i don't know one in every two thousand wow so that that started fucking with people to to keep playing that and then the, they added like a uh, raid battles so the raid battle is this thing where you you need other players to beat certain bosses like it's just impossible to do by yourself so that would idea was to force interaction once you interact they introduce trading so now you can trade the pokemon so if you don't have a shiny but you have like this crazy raid boss that someone else doesn't have you're like oh i'll trade you that for that so then it then you created that um and it just every week every whatever they just add more and more shit and damn (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i got suckered into it i don't know I don't know. There's just aspects of the game that um, it just speaks to like collect. You know, yeah. I I have I don't know how many records. Fifty thousand right? Why do I have fifty thousand records? Like yeah. I'd say I probably haven't played ninety percent of them. They're just sitting in my thing because I yeah. don't know. It had some obscure cut that Dilla used right. to sample. Right. But I'm, you know, I just got it for that one cut, and that's it. Or I, you know, some strange Filipino disco album that I saw just because right. the cover was crazy. I, I have a why. That's, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's but it makes me happy. Yeah, yeah. No, so, that makes... Yeah. Same thing. But I, have we started the podcast? No, this is, we, <laughs> we could. If we, we could if we want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let, why, why don't we get into it? My next guest can be described like this. Um, mixtape extraordinaire, JZ's tour DJ in 2008, incredible DJ, loves food, loves travel. He's yeah. DJ Neil Armstrong, and I want to welcome him to the library with Tim Monica. Thank you, man, for joining What's me. What's going on? Thank you for having me. So I was like, stuff in the beginning, and uh, what was your first taste of well, rap music, and what was your first taste of hip-hop culture, and then what drew you to this? First taste would have been uh, probably like any kid growing up in New York 
So, uh, 80s. The first song I remember really loving was Jam On It by Nucleus. For whatever reason, that song was played on the radio constantly. <clears throat> I don't know what, what, it, what it was about it, but, um, you know, whatever. That, when that bass line came in, <laughs> I was like, oh, this is my joint. <laughs> but I, I, just, I don't know. I must have been somewhere between 5 and 10. Mm. Um, I grew up in Flushing, Queens, but not Chinatown Flushing. Um, kind of on the border of Jamaica. Like, if you go one block over, it's Fresh Meadows. You go in the other direction, it's um, Jamaica States. You go, like, it, it was literally at, literally, I live on the corner because I, I ended up buying a house one block over and I'm in a different zip code. Mm. And um, I went to a very multicultural church, which is, I think, pretty odd. Like, most churches are all black, all Korean, all white, but mine was... I mean, there was a Pakistani family, uh, a bunch of Filipinos, uh, you know, white folks, black folks. I, I just kind of grew up, you know, like at the United Nations. And um, so all of that kind of really was instrumental in creating my outlook of what New York was and what 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 life is, you know, so I... You know, I hate to use it because it turns out, you know, I I really didn't have that, those color right. racist issues because, you know, especially in the church, they're taught, though, this is your family, this right. is your flock. And so, okay, yeah, I guess everyone's my family. Anyway, you know, I remember there was a, a older kid. I don't know if he was a teenager, but he was definitely, you know, older. And um, he was into b-boying like almost everybody was. And I used to just be like amazed. I was like, "Oh my god, this guy's like, he's like Bruce Lee except black." <laughs> what is he doing? How is he? How is he spinning on his back like that? And that was probably how I got really enamored. And of course, Nucleus was, you know, one of them, you know, right. electro sounding b boy anthem type deals, I guess. And yeah, that was the first hip hop song. And, you know, back then, really, really back then, there was that hip-hop is a a, a, a a fad. Yeah. You know, really, really not. I guess it's not really considered that anymore. But I, 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 don't, I think that would be a ridiculous thing to say at this point. But back then, it was like, oh, this is a here today, gone tomorrow type thing. But it was really, really big for a moment. I mean, you had movies about it. You had mm. Breaking, you had, you know, all of that stuff. And for whatever reason, these hip-hop tapes would fall into my lap. So Run DMC, uh, I remember having their album. Uh, I, I'm terrible with names. My my uh, memory is shot as, as I've gotten older. You know, the the classic one with their faces at the bottom and the, you know, Run DMC across. Yeah. Um, My memory is shot, too. So <laughs> <laughs> I should know the name of it, but I don't. I'm terrible. But we would listen to it on the way to, like, basketball camp and, you know, things like that. And uh, that was my first taste. The next important thing that happened was, oddly enough, dealing with church again. My pastor's son... But they, you know, pastors' kids often have a very bad reputation. You know, just a kind of a balanced thing, I guess. And uh, <laughs> my pastor's son gave me NWA, the NWA album, Eric B and Rakim, Follow the Leader, and possibly maybe Cool G Rap or something else. I can't remember to be honest. And you know, I dubbed the cassettes from him, and that was my my next taste. But the one that really brought me in as far as a cultural thing was, um, I guess, what, 1988, 89, right when I was about to start high school or maybe I was a freshman. Um, you know, that that was when, you know, It Takes a Nation of Millions came mm -hmm. out, Slick Rick. You know, Slick yeah. album came out and De La Soul's album came out during and, that time period. Yeah. It's almost like these uh, 
you look at it like it's like you know you got the the militant you know conscious voice you got the party anthem and rick yeah and you got you know that crazy style with with de La. and that was the point where you could say i became a hip-hop head and in particular it was de la soul's album which is really interesting because it's the 30th anniversary right. so i guess 30 30 years ago is when i became like a real hip-hop head I used to go to these um, Christian retreats. I was like, I was like a, a youth past, not pastor, but like the leader of my youth group. And I'm part of the United Methodist Church. The church was actually they had these conference things. So those conferences were geographic, and so you would have people coming from upstate New York, like. Goshen. I don't even know if any of y'all know what Goshen is, but I always remember that there was this one kid who kept saying, I'm Bill from Goshen. So <laughs> I, don't even, I still don't know where Goshen is, but obviously it's somewhere upstate. And then you had folks coming out from like all the way out from like Lake Ronkonkoma, but then anywhere in between. So people from Amityville would be there, people from whatever, you know. And when we were on the bus, a lot of the, the people that were in our conference were from the black churches. And at the time, De La just dropped, you know, their right. first album. And that's all we listened to in the bus. So that was really like the first time I, I heard that. At the same time, really interestingly enough, being an Asian American in New York. So I went to Bronx Science. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's some unsaid rule, but eventually if you're Asian, you probably listen to New Wave. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, my sister did. My sister... Uh, I, so I grew up with that, you know, whatever your older sibling does, yeah, of course, yeah. you know, you, yeah. you kind of follow. And I mean, I, I was a new wave head, like through and through. I've, I've seen New Order perform live, OMD, Depeche Mode probably like six times. Uh, just, I used to just follow my sister. She had to bring me to the concerts. My mother made her. So... For whatever reason, there was there used to be a, a radio station called WLIR, which later on became WDRE and became WLIR again. But their whole thing was like, you know, new music first and dare to be different. So they used to play De La Souls I Know on the radio when... I mean, no one no one was playing their stuff on the radio. Because this, I mean, this is the time, not to cut you off, but this is the time that I remember... Z100, for example, would have like their big thing would be like an absolutely like the voiceover would be like absolutely no rap or something like yeah, that. Like that was the big course. thing at the time. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> I mean MTV, which is really interesting. MTV, there was, you know, it's really people just don't know this or just don't can't realize it. But there was a point where they refused to play. They didn't say it this way. They would say, "Well, we gotta worry about." You know our demographic that lives in Middle America, that, right. and but this is the this is the craziest thing they actually said straight up, and, and this was an interview with David Bowie. They were like, you know, we have to worry about our demographic that might be scared of, you know, a, a lot of black artists yeah. on their TV screen, like just straight up. Yeah, yeah. we're racist. <laughs> it's crazy, but anyway, for whatever reason, WLIR used to play. I know. And that two things kind of coupling together were like, wow, this side of me is playing this music and this other side, I'm hearing it, you know, in this area. So I was like, all right, I'm, I'm going to get into it. So it was really like those three albums that turned me from a casual fan into like, okay, well, if I like Public Enemy, I'm going to have to look into these guys. And if I like De La, well, I got to look into Tribe and I got to look into Brand Nubian. And then, you know, every all my friends in school were wearing Jabos mm. and they were, you know, copying Grand Poobah's style. So next thing you know, I got to go yeah. find those. I got to go find a pair of Tim's and I got to go do all that. And, you know, it just kind of snowballed. And, you know, they kind of say when you're in high school, whatever you're into, that will be what you're into for the rest of your life. So if you're into, you know, Zeppelin and rock and yeah. Right, Probably right. when you get older, you're going to like the same thing. For me, it was hip-hop. And then let's fast forward maybe 
when I got into Cooper Union. By that time, it's already 90... Oh, my God, when did I go to school? 92, 93, 94, 95. So, yeah, 92, 93, 94, 95, 96. Right? So late, right? Yeah. Anyway, that's Fat Beats kind of starts. I end up hanging out at Fat Beats all the time. I wasn't DJing quite yet, but somehow I ended up getting a hold of these, um, the DMC battles. I don't know why. I don't know what prompted me to go buy these VHS cassettes. And I was just like, wow, what the heck is going on here? This is freaking crazy. And I ended up, there used to be this thing called the New Music Seminar, which used to be like a very rock-oriented event, but eventually it... uh kind of got morphed uh, it, it it was still both for sure um but um you know the god dj clark kent um used to throw a dj battle there and an mc battle and i went there as a like a, a volunteer like if you volunteered you get in for free oh nice so that summer i i volunteered and um i mean that was just I forget what they call those life-changing moments, that there's like a nice little pretty word for that. But basically that set up the rest of my life from that point. I go and I end up meeting this kid, Kinetic Energy, and his clique, who he was at the time, he was part of the crew called The Arsonists. Right. Um, I go there and I meet Qbert and Shortcut for the first time. Shortcut is actually battling. So Shortcut is a DJ from the Bay, part of a crew called the Invisible Scratch Pickles, also the Triple Threat DJs, also the Beat Junkies. Um, one of the illest, most talented DJs, you know, still doing it today. Um, he just did uh, an event in Dubai, like a turntable orchestra thing. Um, he battles, and he he is Filipino-American, as, as is Qbert. And, um, you know, I see on stage for the first time someone who kind of looks like me that is uh, just kind of, you know, killing it. Right. Like, people didn't really care. Like, it wasn't like, oh, like, you know, who's this outsider? They're like, oh, my God, this guy's killing it. And that, that's, that was it. That's all he needed to do to be accepted. And, you know, I was already a super fan. And I guess at some point you um, you don't want to just you know, watch anymore a culture. You, you want to contribute Man. to the culture. So DJing was it for me. And I, I like to say that was 94. Um, by 95, I become DJ Neil Armstrong. Um, actually Joe from fat beats kind of gave me the name. Oh, nice. Um, more as a kind of being an asshole, I guess. Which is <laughs> not odd. You know, that's usually how you get your DJ name. And it kind of stuck. And, um, yeah. And now I'm here with you. <laughs> a couple of things happened in between, but that, w- that would be it. That's how it all started. When did you know that? I mean, when did you, when did you know how big, I guess, or big of an involvement that this, this, that this rap music was? It was not just something you heard. Well, you barely heard on the radio. You played with your friends, but amongst your friends, but was part of this this culture. I mean, it's kind of like when did that like, kind of set in that? All right, I'm I'm I, I I love this music and I want to contribute, but how do I just not just contribute to the music, but also contribute to be be a strong contributor to what is this huge culture? Like, when did that happen for yeah, me? Yeah, I guess or? when was the realization? You know that. I mean, I guess, I guess the realization was when I did my first show for Fat Beats uh, at a, I'd like to say it was Club Vinyl, but again, my brain is shot. It's either Vinyl or Wetlands. I'm pretty sure it was Club Vinyl. And I had, I was hanging out with Fat Beats a lot, quite a bit. Essentially, what ended up happening with me was I was writing um, articles. So fortunately, you know, I've had the opportunity for higher education 
And, um, you know, I, I, I didn't want to use whatever writing skills or whatever I was taught in school for boring stuff. This is at the very start of the internet, you know, like <laughs> Alta Vista days. <laughs> there was no, you know how we log into everything now? Like, you know, we log, we go to a website, we log in usually via Facebook or Google. Yeah. None of that existed back then. There, there's a pre Black Planet, pre Asian Avenue, pre any of these, you know, login type things. It was just like a free for all, you know. The information was there, but getting to it was kind of weird. There used to be a magazine called The Guillotine. And it was run by a, a, a female MC named Shaki. And I don't know if she still rhymes. I, you know, just through time we lost touch with each other. One of the other contributors was uh, a guy who ended up kind of making his name in, a, I guess, acting. Mums. Mums a schemer. I don't know. I can't remember who else was involved, but essentially I, I hit him up and I was like, look, I'm going to Asia to study for, uh, for the summer. Actually, we got into some program out in, um, I can't even remember the name of the university. Um, but anyway, I was like, I wanted to write a paper about hip hop in Asia. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that would be great. Let's do that. And so, that almost kind of set me up for everything. I end up going out there. I end up meeting the Hong Kong DMC champions from like the last three years. Yeah, like, you know, just, just a lot of serendipitous Man. situations. I'm on the train. Just I'm on the train and I see a guy with a Techniques t-shirt. And I he fortunately he happens to be able to speak a little English uh, more than the rest. His name is um, B. Chan. And he's like, oh, I'm... I'm one of the DMC champs and he brings me to hang out with this other kid named DJ Tommy, who was also one of the, like uh maybe a DMC champ. He was there when uh, DJ David did the, like the hand spin on the turn. So a lot of you guys don't know this, but there was one DMC where this kid did like a, a hand spin <laughs> On the turntables, he put them up and he did it and people lost their minds. And that was the first, I'd like to say that was the first world finals that Qbert was in. And Qbert mm. was all about skills. So there became this divide in the turntable community. Very similar to like the underground backpacker versus, you know, the shiny bling bling side. Yeah. It, there was, I, what's real? Like, you know, someone just backspinning, which... Is, is cool, but it's like a circus act or right. what what these guys are doing, you know, manipulating sound. Anyway, DJ Tommy was at that battle. He was a Hong Kong chap all the way from back then. And that might have been 89 or 90. I don't know. Anyway, I ended up hanging with them all summer. That was the year that for the DJ heads, the Vestex, the Vestex mixer hadn't come out yet. The PMX Pro, which is... The ISP, the first ISP, uh, which is ISP is the Invisible Scratch Pickles. So Qbert's Shortcuts Mixer, blah, blah, blah. Shortcut and Qbert happened to be going to Taiwan while I was in Hong Kong to discuss with Vestex building this new mixer. So me, DJ Tommy, you know, we just jumped a plane on a plane and went to Taiwan to meet them. So my opening thing with Qbert was like, I write for this magazine called The Guillotine. Can I interview you? So that was that. Like, that was my opening. Right. Back home in New York, all anyone had to know was like, oh, Neil took a picture with Qbert. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, you got to think back. There's no Instagram. Yeah. The fact, all, all that's, that's all people have to see. And that's, that's enough for people to believe. Oh, that's... Oh, that's, that must be Cuber's boy. <laughs> so Neil must be really good. So it, which I, it was true. I sucked. <laughs> I was terrible. I wasn't, I wasn't really DJ Neil Armstrong back then. I was becoming him. And um, from that interview that I did with Cubert, when I came back to New York, I didn't know the X-Men yet. But my introduction to them was I interviewed Cubert in um you know in asia 
that I interview you guys. But what ended up happening was they ended up taking me in. That's awesome. As a student, essentially. So I learned from Rock Raider, from Rob Swift, from Total Eclipse, from Mr. Sinister. Like, those were my teachers. And I had the a very rough... <laughs> like basically class was I had to battle them <laughs> you know we would throw a dollar in a in a hat and I would have to battle them you know that some of the most respected top DJs in the world I go from being nobody to having to fight these guys right. to spar mm-hmm. with them wait one on one battles or did you have to battle we would go like you know I don't know what the term is but like you know I would battle Mr. Sinister whoever would win would battle the next oh, okay. you know so Total Eclipse would battle Rob. I would battle, you know, someone else. Whoever wins that would, you know, right. go to the finals type thing. Bracket, I guess bracket. bracket. Yeah, and that was my that was my upbringing. That's how it happened. So all of this, you know, I'm telling this story. All of this happens with from the summer of 95 to the beginning of 1996. So it's... Six months. Nice, yeah. So it goes from six months to me being really nobody to learning from some of the best DJs. Six months. So yeah, I would say right then was when I was like, yeah, this is not normal. Like, uh, I'm I'm part of this, and this is something I want to dedicate my time and life to. So even though I was in college, I mean, I was still practicing like eight, ten hours a day. I'm not sure how either I was at home or I was literally, I was telling a story a little before, you know, I'd be at fat beats. So if I wasn't in class, I wasn't doing whatever I was doing. I was at fat beats or I was at home or I was hanging out with the X-Men. And, um, basically through the X-Men, I ended up meeting my DJ crew, the fifth platoon and we formed together and we end up, kind of causing a lot of havoc for a little while yeah yeah until shoot i guess 2007 i guess we were kind of active and then after that is when i ended up joining jay-z and kind of life went a little even more crazy uh there's been a lot of questions from that uh from your answer but um one question is why 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 did you pers- why why did you end up pursuing DJing versus b-boying versus MC? You know, like you know, uh-huh. your pastor's son is, or that guy, that kid, you just <laughs> break dancing, obviously really impressive. And then, but you but you decided to go the DJing. Well, route. I I tried to b-boy and I was sucked, and I tried to <laughs> I tried to graph and I sucked, and there's no freaking way. I you know I tried to MC, of course, who has it? But right. yeah, I sucked. <laughs> like, <laughs> but DJing seemed to be the thing that I could do. Um, which is odd because DJing's DJing's kind of hard to get into, right? B-boying, all you need is sneakers, and sometimes you don't even need those. Right, right. MCing, you don't, you know, pen and a pad. Right. You know, graph, same thing, pen and a pad. But but DJ's the DJing, most like, you, expensive, you, right? Yeah. yeah. But and a lot of lifting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was the thing that I think kind of drew me in I like so my first set was uh shoot like a real janky gemini table because it was cheap and i think i had a gemini mixer and i and i that was it i only had one turntable and a mixer and i would play something off the radio and try to do stuff but mm. it's just impossible because like a gemini like a it was a belt drive turntable and can't really do anything with it or not, you know, right. with a technique. Eventually, I think I bought my... I My first technique might have been used that I bought from Canal Street just because it was a bit cheaper. And um, it just kind of grew from there. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, when I was in high school, I was that kid who would record Stretch Armstrong and Bobbito. Nice, yeah. I'd be the kid who was up all night just I don't know, you know, there seemed to be a lot of pirate radio back then, and I, I honestly don't know how I found them. I I must have just kept turning the dial until I heard something. So like, Silver Surfer had a show. Uh, I don't know, 
a kid named Bishop Lord. I, f- I forgot the names of all the shows. I remember Marley Marl. Mm-hmm. Every, every so often would have a show. For some reason, I never really heard the BAI shows. I, most likely because I didn't get it. Right, right, they, yeah. Um, so you probably heard some NYU shows like Eclipse or anything? I don't know if Eclipse had a show back then. Maybe. But the, one of the shows that I did was at NYU that I, I heard that I heard they were located at NYU. The other show was obviously, you know, stretch. Yeah. And then, you know, later on when 88 hip hop came out and all that, you know, we, that by that time I was DJing. So I was actually performing on those shows. Um, but yeah, it seemed the DJing thing was the thing that just called me. It made sense. I was that dude who had all the tapes right. and I used to, uh, you know, I mean, everyone kind of made mixtapes back then, just compilations, but that's what I used to do. So, yeah, definitely. When did you know you <clears throat> nailed it? So, you know, so to say, like, when did you know that you could... uh, I mean, I, I never really felt that way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> to be the, the age that I grew up in with hip hop, you had to be somewhat arrogant. You you weren't humble in, in the battle scene. You had to act like you were the shit. Right. Or at least, you know, not back down. Um, me, personally, I never felt like I, quote unquote, made it. But when I was running around with the fifth platoon, you know, th- just little victories, I guess, which really amounted to nothing because we weren't really getting paid. Which, And I hate to say it that way, but, you know, ultimately that's, that that is a a mark like the difference between an amateur and a professional is when you get paid i guess right mm. and uh you know we our first mention was in rap pages we we got a oh, mention yeah, in yeah. rap pages nice. and stuff like that and then we were on the cover like our name was on the cover not you know some mention in the back for whatever reason back when XXL was still somewhat of a quote-unquote hip-hop magazine like yeah they put our name as a fifth platoon whatever but cash money was also on the cover and (laughs) (laughs) which is weird right um but yeah we got like a full page little interview about what you know like who's next like one of those who's next type things so i think those were the things and then obviously you know when i joined jay like if I, that doesn't validate what I've done, I don't know what else will. <laughs> uh, yeah. You talked about fit, uh, Fat Beats, um, and obviously people who grew up in New York City kind of really really realize the significance of Fat Beats to uh, hip-hop community and also to even artists that are just, you know, trying to get together to collaborate on something. Uh, if you can, can you just kind of talk about the significance that Fat Beats, the store itself, had to... New York hip hop culture, as well as artists that might never have been you know, heard by any of us if they didn't. I mean, I, I don't even. I, I wouldn't even just say New York hip hop. It's hip hop, right? Like New York. I mean, they they ended up having a store in Amsterdam and uh, L.A. for a while, and actually they they reopened in yeah. L.A. now, right? But it was like a almost like a destination, like back then. I guess money wasn't really involved yet. Whoever was involved in hip hop was involved for, I guess, quote unquote, the right reasons. So just because they were fans of the music. So it was almost like, just like Stretch Armstrong, if you watch their, their, their movie, they talk about like, it's almost like they were the gatekeepers. Right. In order for you to blow up, you had to go through them. And they had the Nas, Biggie, Big L, pick someone right. from that era. They had to get on that show, and it, and it wasn't even a, a causal thing, right? Or a perp, on purpose thing. Is this is how it is? Like, right. you know, I, I don't think they were ever arrogant about nah. If you're not on our show, like you ain't shit. But that was the facts. Like, right. so MCs wanted to get on that show. People wanted to go to Fat Beats if they came to New York and you were a hip hop head. And um. I mean, there was just that aspect. So, as far as New York goes, it was just kind of this meeting place. 
Um, I remember who later on, I remember LP being outside and I didn't really actually talk to him, but this is, I think this is before Fun Crusher Plus came out. Okay. And just the yeah. EP was out. So, you know, he was just chilling out there and talking to heads and, oh, I'm LP, you know. They have video of Kanye performing in there. Right. Uh, Gangstar. Pick someone. Pick someone. It was just this epicenter of the hip-hop universe for quite a while. And then, of course, the divide happened, you know, commercial versus whatever, which kind of maybe killed a lot of stuff, you know. Even Stretch and, and Bobito kind of mentioned, like, you know, we started going in different directions musically. And I think Fat Beats might have had a bit of a identity crisis. Uh, not Fat Beats having it, but just the, you know, what is hip-hop now? Is it the shiny suit era stuff or right. is it this backpacker stuff? Like what's real? You know, and you know, and of course I guess if you if the winner gets to dictate what 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 is, you know, history, I guess the shiny suit era won, right? right. Um, but yeah, even back, you know, there was like Stretch Armstrong went Stretch and Bob went from doing their radio show to going on hot 97 right you know and i'm positive people were like uh that's the enemy what's going on here you know and i think unfortunately that's ended up what that's what ended up happening also obviously the start of digital downloads and things like serato coming out and people not really wanting to buy records anymore and the music kind of getting diluted. So that Fat Beats ended up really kind of representing that backpacker, you know, almost borderline nerdy. Right. Like you could buy like an Ugly Duckling record there, you know. And that's what it's supposed to be, you know. But if you're not into that stuff, you look at it and you're like, you know, I don't even know what the designation for that stuff is anymore it wouldn't be college rap like college rap i guess is the later asher ross stuff but you know there were all these kids that were just rapping now uh you know during the atmosphere times and you know that style is is quote-unquote lyrical and it's right. Backpacker nerdy, you go to the you go to the shows and it's a bunch of dudes. With backpacks on. Yeah, with backpacks <laughs> on and that's not fun to a lot of people if they're just trying to meet girls and they're trying to have fun and so yeah, I think there was just a bit of an identity crisis at the end. And I think I know for the turntable scene, the way I saw it was it almost became like before there was a, a designation between the fan and the uh and and the people on stage or there was a division, right? So we would be on stage and everyone else was just regular people and they could consume what we were doing. But as time went on, turntablism got really abstract to a lot of people. So eventually the only people in the in the in the audience were other DJs. Right. And it kept getting more abstract, almost like I, I I can only speculate, but you know, like Coltrane stuff was really a little crazy to a lot of people. I bet I bet there are some people who are just like, this just sounds like noise. Right. Like, I don't get it. I don't understand what's going on in this song. But if you're ahead, you're like, oh my god, like there's you know, I, I, there's like a video showing like all this crazy stuff right. mathematically that's happening in this song but it's unsustainable when you don't have a division between fan base and like people performing Every, if everyone's performing no one wants to pay right <laughs> so if, if i'm djing and it's just my homies coming because they're the ones who like it my friends aren't going to pay 10 bucks this evening <laughs> so eventually that scene kind of ate itself alive too and for like I think there 
there has been a somewhat of a resurgence, um, like the Red Bull three style stuff. The DMC battles are still around, and actually, the really hardcore musical scratch people have actually found a space as well online, um, less competition oriented, um, and just a community base. But they also do competitions and they do them online, so the overhead is not the same. Like you don't have to go out and rent a venue and hope that. A hundred people show up just to break even. Like, nah, it's cool. There's no yeah. just submit the video, get a sponsor. You know the the you know the hits. That's what will you know how you can say like, hey, you should sponsor this because we could get your product out. Right. Blah, blah blah. Um, but yeah. So I don't even remember what the original question was anymore. But <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so what so for that like what is your role? What what has what what do you what do you feel was your role as a DJ? But how has that I mean, you, you've, you know, obviously you mentioned the Jay-Z tour. You've gone to bigger, bigger, much bigger things. Uh, so you, you know, like you can't do the quote-unquote underground set, right? I mean, you're, you're playing to I, a bigger audience. I still audience. can, but that would be, that was actually one of the more interesting things that would happen to me when I was on tour. Like, I had my little, I guess, identity crisis, but... If I had never joined Jay-Z, I would probably be more like a Cucumber Slice, Bobito of Rich Medina, a, a DJ Spinner. Uh, you know, I I don't think Rich Medina has ever played a Future song. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could be wrong, but I don't think he has. You know, uh, Spinner does like a, a crazy, I guess, house night, and I would probably be more like those guys. But that's not what happened to me. I got stuck with the biggest MC, arguably the greatest MC, you know, definitely the most commercially successful MC. Right. And so, yeah, I got to adjust. I can't freaking shove Dilla beats down a gr- bunch of people who all they know is D block. Like, right. Right. So I had to, did you try? <laughs> I don't know if I, you would say I would try. It was interesting when I was on tour with Jay it was 2009 2008 2009 and i was on tour so i wasn't really listening to the music i wasn't in clubs okay i was out doing my thing so i was still pushing some of my older style of stuff that it just didn't occur to me i should switch it up and it would work just cause you know it was still good music but you know that was the advent of the electronic side coming into play so that was starting when, you know, uh, maybe a year later is when like Barbara Streisand would come out and that whole, you know, like the Far East moving and the party rock stuff mm-hmm. was starting to infiltrate. And I wasn't doing that at all. I was just I don't know, I was still playing Mary J. Blast because I was on tour with Mary J. You right, know, right. And yeah, you know, it was interesting. I, I wasn't really playing Lil Wayne back then and I... I ended up playing Lil Wayne, but you know, I t- when I was on the cover of XXL with Lil Wayne, I wouldn't dare play a Lil Wayne song. <laughs> Not back then, but yeah, later on, I had to kind of maneuver and figure out, okay, you know, because ultimately, I think, I and I think this is where I might not agree with some DJs who are out there. You know, there used to be this kind of mentality that like. Uh, almost like you know well if the crowd doesn't like what i'm playing then that's their fault right, you know i'm yeah. here to educate the crowd uh, i was i you know i i have a totally different philosophy like my my belief is like you know no like our our job we're, we're public servants mm. so if there happens to be a group of people who came out you know, a large group of people that just turned 21 and they want to hear Britney Spears, like, those are the people I need to take care of. You know, I, you know, even in a just more bigger scheme, like, when people go out on a Friday night, they're trying to escape their problems. Right. They're trying to forget stuff. They're not trying to learn. They're not trying to be educated. They're, they just want to cut loose. Yeah. So, you know, that's not my job at that point. My job is to take care of them. And it's been interesting because that quote has been misconstrued and 
if you don't take it in context, it sounds kind of weird. But yeah, like, I think, and, and this is a paraphrasing from, a, oh my God, what's that movie? Joe Pesci was in it, the Harvard dude, Brandon oh, Fraser. Yeah, yeah, what, uh, you know what I'm talking about, yes. right? But he talks about what the job of the president, right, is... With uh, honors. No, with yeah, honors. something with, with honors, honors yeah. right? He says, like, the job of the president is, you know, the the, the beauty, what which... Consequently, right now doesn't seem to be true. <laughs> but the beauty of uh, of our government is that the 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 president, no matter what, can never be a dictator because he works for us. That's what his job is supposed to be. He works for us. We're the boss. Right. He's not the boss. We're the boss. I, unfortunately, I think that's been lost recently. But that's what I feel with DJing. Like I'm a public servant. I'm not the boss. Like you got to tell me and then I'll, I'll act accordingly. Now a really good DJ does fit in the cool stuff does fit in music that they, they would like, you know, and they find common ground. Um, the easier stuff would be like a old Marvin Gaye joint and Michael Jackson, which yeah. is really interesting. I hope you asked me about the Michael Jackson stuff right now. Cause obviously we have a little controversy these days, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, like, that's my attitude. So I I willfully sold out, if that's what people want to say. It was not an issue for me because if this these are my constituents, I need to take care of my constituents, the people who come to my party. And eventually I I would like to say I got to be known as like, oh, he just throws a good party. So I've been able, I mean, I've DJed at the do-over. I've done... And not just LA and in Asia and whatever. Uh, um, did I do one? I don't know if we did. I guess Mexico. No, no, that was an Adidas event. But uh, we did the Philippines, Tokyo, not Tokyo. Um, maybe Osaka in Japan. Okay. Anyway, the point is, I've been able to do a lot of really cool parties and. I'm hoping everyone just came home with a, you know, like, oh, I had a great time. Right. You know, whether or not they remember what I played is kind of secondary to me. It's more, you know, I had a blast. I don't even remember. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember what happened. I, I was just having too much fun. That's more important to me than, you know, whatever. But if it is a DJ nerd nerd out, which I do get to do every so often, oh, that's perfect for me too. And I did a part, I did a, we did an all R&B party and actually this is not really odd that I do these things, but I guess this day and age, a lot of DJs are, I don't know, I guess they don't do, but I, I you know, I, I played a Sade song and I played certain songs. I played an old Motown song that was obscure and I guess nowadays certain things like that were risky and one of my DJs, DJ homies, uh, DJ Oba, Oba, um, you know, he felt it enough of a surprise that he, he posted something about it. Like, yo, no one takes risks anymore. And you know, this, I, I respect Neil for doing this. And you know, that's, a, that's to me, that's a good DJ and he's a DJ head. He yeah. does an all vinyl party. Wait, why would, why, why, why is just, why is that a risk? I guess some cats just don't do that. Uh. Not at, prime time you know they'll keep it a certain level i played no i think i played mint condition that that was in particular at maybe one mm. and i've done this a couple of times just cause if you if you give me that leeway like you can really do whatever you want we have a musical crowd Oh, that 100% i will do stuff like that even if it wasn't an r&b party All right uh, just cause I don't know. I used to do that. Um, but yeah, if you don't give me that type of leeway, absolutely. I'm scared. Cause I don't know what, you know, these kids nowadays, the people who go out to clubs, it's not these kids, the kids who people who go out to club are in the range of, let's just say on the low end, 19 to 30. All right. 
that's the normal person. Then you got someone like me who's been in the club forever. I'm like a super senior. <laughs> um, but just as a, a gauge, they were born then after 94. Yeah. So they were born before One More Chance came out, <laughs> before Juicy came out. Like, why would they know that? You know, except through, you know, through just the public stream of consciousness. It's been in movies, you know, right. people reference it. Notorious Big had a, a, a movie right now or they not right now. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like yeah. there was a Notorious Big biopic right. movie. But beyond that, they don't I, I don't know if they know. You know, Old Smith and Wesson songs. I don't know. Right. I've never heard a Sade song played on normal radio on Z100. Have you? No. All right. So, yeah, those things are a little risky. I, I'm sure they know an Ariana Grande song, but a Sade song, you know, that's, that might be a little tougher. So, yeah, this, I guess, I don't, again, I don't remember where I started. <laughs> I'm sorry, I ramble. Obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm a rambler. <laughs> BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.